been made well. Let us pray. Father in heaven, take your word, the gospel of your son, drive it deep into our hearts and minds. Let it shape the way we love and the things that we love. Use it to make us more like your son, our savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Seated. So we return to the Gospel of John, and we are in the section of the book, the first 11 chapters known as the Book of Signs. There are seven signs, the final one being the sign of Lazarus and the death of Lazarus, or his being raised from the dead. And we're now going to take a look at the second and third signs, two signs uh, of healing that take place. Whenever healings take place and Jesus does healings, lots of questions about signs and wonders and, and healings affect us. We're going to consider some of those things as well. Why are these stories part of the signs of the glory of Jesus Christ? So, John, um, having, after Jesus returns to Galilee and performs a second miracle again in Cana, then John then shifts to an incident when Jesus heads back up to Jerusalem for a feast and heals a man struck with a lifelong infirmity. So these two stories take place first as Jesus returns to, um, to, to Galilee, to the area of Galilee. That includes Nazareth, where he was born, or where he was raised. I'm sorry, not where he was born, but where he, he was raised. That's his hometown area. Galilee is the general area there. He goes to Cana, where that first miracle had taken place. And then the second one, we were taken back to, the, to uh, Jerusalem to a feast. Those are the two uh, stories that we're taking a look at. Recall that we're in the section, as I mentioned, that the book of signs are in. And in this section, the signs have a purpose. The signs have a purpose. Why is it so important for us to know that Jesus turned water into wine? Well, we took a look at that. We saw that it wasn't just to show us that he could perform miracles. But that particular miracle, that particular sign pointed, it told us things. It was like a sign saying, look that way, go that way. So our focus isn't to be just on the sign, but let the sign show us. Show us what? Well, show us the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, the glory that leads to faith in him. John 1.14, and, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. His miracles reflected, displayed his glory. John 2.11, then the beginning of the signs, this is after the uh, water to wine incident, this, this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So as we will see, the, the, um, it, the, the revealing of Jesus' glory that leads unto faith is different than coming to the belief that Jesus can do really cool and supernatural things, which is not the point. John is recording these signs to reveal who Jesus is and not simply what Jesus can do. Signs, as I said, point to something. Um, they have a particular purpose. They're pointing to the person, character, and purpose of Jesus Christ. So, the second sign. The second sign that takes place, verses 43 through 54 of chapter 4. Um, 
Remember, recall, this is coming also on the heels of him going through Samaria. So Samaria, are, these Samaritans are not Jews. Um, and yet when he um, speaks the gospel, basically speaks the gospel to this woman at the well, she believes, she goes and tells her people, they all come out, they hear Jesus, they come to faith. He spends two days there and a glorious revival takes place among a bunch of Samaritans. So many Samaritans believed in Jesus during the two days that he had spent teaching, teaching there. And now in contrast, um, Luke tells us that when Jesus came to Nazareth, John doesn't record this, but when Jesus came to Nazareth, they tried to kill him for his claims of fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy. So he's in Samaria, he speaks to the Samaritan woman, and they listen to his words and they believe. Luke tells us of a story where he's in Nazareth, he's in his home city, and he goes into the synagogue, he opens up the book of Isaiah, he, he preaches from this book of Isaiah saying, um, this is all fulfilled today in your presence. And they drive him out to a cliff and try to throw him off. <laughs> the contrast is supposed to be vivid in our minds. John may have had that occurrence in mind as, as Jesus would have traveled through Nazareth on further down into Cana of Galilee. So you would have gone further north and down towards the, towards the, the sea, towards the, to the lake, uh, to, towards the Sea of Galilee, as you would have gone from Nazareth down into Cana. And then further on, about another 20 miles to uh, Capernaum, which is, where, uh, which is right on the sea. So while John doesn't tell us that story about Luke, he, he gives us this one verse in, uh, in verse 44 that all of the other uh, gospel writers also speak, but they, all, they tie it directly to the, the event that took place in Nazareth. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. But when he comes to the general area of Galilee, and particularly to Cana, the Galileans receive him. They do begin to receive him. But it says, um, interestingly, it says in 45, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the, fe at the feast... For they also had gone to the feast. This noticing of Jesus' miracles and signs that draws the crowd, there's, there's a part of coming to Jesus because of the signs and miracles that is not um, complimented by Jesus. It's not, he doesn't find favor in that. Um, he wants these things to be signs to create and cause something other than just belief that he's really, really powerful or really, really... Um, you know, in, in some ways, just able to do magic tricks in some ways. He's not trying to draw a crowd for that purpose at all. So even there in Galilee, the interest in Jesus is mainly due to the miracles that he had done in Judea. Also in, in chapter 2, it talks about that. Jesus appears to be disinterested in faith due to enthusiasm by his miracles. Other gospel writers noted that Jesus did heal to reveal that he was the one fulfilling the prophecy. So for instance, in Matthew chapter 8, you don't have to turn there, but it says uh, in, in Matthew chapter 8, when evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, he himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. So Matthew records that there are all these miracles, all these signs, all these healings that take place. And then he says, that's to fulfill what Isaiah is saying. It's to point you that this person is fulfilling that. That he himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. Now, I just want to set that aside for just a second because I don't know if you've noticed, but Jesus doesn't appear to continually heal all of our sicknesses and infirmities, does he? 
So there's something more important that all that is going on than the fact that he is and is still able to heal. We, we're praying for healing. We pray and, and we watch God do wonderful things. But God doesn't heal every sickness and infirmity all the time. And, and well, I, I want you to keep that in mind. So, so what is happening here? What, is, what are we being told? Where did he bear all of our infirmities and all our sicknesses? Is there a place, is there a time where that actually happened? And happens? What's going on? Consider this. Matthew and John both saw that something more profound was being revealed than simply that Jesus could heal. So, the story is that Jesus is now approached by a royal official, um, probably a member of Herod's court, whose son was sick and at the point of death and was in Capernaum some 20 miles away. There's several mentions, several times that people from Herod's court are mentioned. Herod is finding out somehow about Jesus, and, and at the end of uh, one of the Gospels, we're told that um, he's brought, uh, Pilate sends Jesus to Herod, and Herod is really excited to have Jesus come because he's hoping he can see a trick. He's hoping he can see a miracle also. So Herod knows about, uh, about Jesus, and, and apparently this would be one of maybe the first instances that Herod's going to find out about Jesus, because one of the royal officials in his family, most likely, um, has a son who is sick and at the point of death, and he comes 20 miles from Capernaum because he hears that Jesus is in Cana. This man had heard of Jesus' healing abilities, and so he sought him out. And Jesus uses his query to openly chide the crowd's desire to see signs and wonders just for their own sake. This is where it says here in uh, verse 48, Jesus said to him, it says, but then, but then it's in the plural, which is why in uh, like the New King James you, say, you see him say, unless you people, unless you all. So he's addressing the man, but he's really speaking to everyone. And he's saying, unless you, you all see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. And there's this chiding, he, he, there's, there's this contrast, see, again, in, there were no signs and miracles. There were no miracles that took place that we know of in Samaria. There was just the word preached, and they believed. And they believed. But you need signs and miracles. You need, you need a little dog and pony show in order for me to get your attention, he is saying to, to these folks. And at the same time, though, Jesus has great compassion. He can heal. And a sign takes place. A sign takes place in this. The nobleman's not swayed at all and repeats his request. Come down with me. Come down with me and, and heal my son. Raise, raise him up from his sickness. And at this point, Jesus gives a very interesting command and promise. He says, go your way. Your son lives. Uh, he's not going to go down. He just says, you go your way. Your son lives. And, and what is striking is that we are told in verse 50 here, Jesus said to him, go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. So, Jesus, so the man believed the word and went his way. A command and a promise. He didn't return until the following day. We're not sure if he waited um, till late, till, or it was, it was too far to travel, it, was, it would get dark too soon. Very dangerous to, oftentimes to be traveling at night. Um, we know it's the next day that he's arriving, he's coming close to Capernaum, um, because the servants meet him and they say, yesterday your son was healed, the fever left him. And they ask, what time? It was, it was about 1 p.m., it was about the seventh hour. And, and the nobleman knows that was the very time that Jesus said, your son lives. And he's ama amazing. 
Uh, he's amazed. And this testimony that the man gives, um, that this nobleman gives, that was the very moment, the very hour that Jesus said, go your way, brings his entire household to faith as well. Some point out that Jesus' first miracle of water to wine revealed his power over time. You didn't have to wait um, 18 months for the, for the, for the crest grapes to, to ferment. You just turned water into wine. You didn't have to go into the, into the ground and come up out, out of the, uh, in, into the grapes and then be crushed and then ferment. You just turned the water immediately into wine. So Jesus has this control over time or how things change over time. And, and, then, and then they want to point out that the second, the second one reveals his power over space. Jesus doesn't actually have to physically be at a location in order for his miraculous works to take place. And this is certainly true. These, these things are both true. But as we saw in the first sign, there's something far deeper being revealed. And in the second sign, we are to see something about Jesus' word. He speaks the word, and the man receives the word as a command and a promise to be believed and followed. Um, Jesus is the word of God. And when the word of God speaks, when God speaks, that which he declares becomes. God said, let there be light. And there was light. When God speaks the word, Jesus, who is the word, when God speaks the word, that which he declares becomes. The point is not faith in a powerful man, but faith in the word of God, who is a person. The word of God that brings forth life, that brings forth life from the dead, that brings forth that which is not into the very pre into, into present, that brings forth that which is impossible and creates it, makes it, reveals it. Faith is not to be placed in what you see. The boy was not there. Faith is to be placed in God's promises and in his commands. It was not, the man already believed, it says, when he heard God's word, I believe you. He goes home. He doesn't even seem to rush home. He's, there's a certainty that he seems to have, and it's not till the next day that he arrives. I, 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 I dare say he was not surprised to find out that his boy was healed. And his testimony is such that he brings then others to faith as well. So faith is not to be placed in what you see. <laughs> faith is never to be placed in what you see. That's the point of faith. Having faith in the declared word of God is, is not to have faith in what God has done, what you can see him doing. It's to have faith and trust in his faithfulness to his word and promise. It's, it's to have faith before you can see. It's to, it's to believe before you can see. Not to have to have miracles done for you in order to believe, but to believe before the miracles even take place. His word is true, and his commands are good. His word is true, and his commands are good. See, they, his commands come from his word as well. And he shows his goodness in his creative and recreative power. Who is Jesus? He is the one who speaks, and that which he declares becomes. That's, that, that's far more powerful than just the fact that he can do supernatural things. It is his word at work. 
in us all the time. Second, we go from the second to the third sign now. Um, and, and what happens is we leave Galilee, and, and very quickly, John wants to take us to another situation. Jesus returns to Jerusalem for one of the feast days. He goes to a pool called Bethesda. Bethesda means house of mercy, where a multitude of sick people were, would, would gather. According to these scriptures here, um, there was a pool that had five colonnades, five porches, um, and this little section here, is, it's interesting, um, this little section was, was used for, um, during, during the early 19th century, to prove that the, that the Gospels were really not true and not accurate, because there, was no, they, there were no remains of any pool, colonnades, uh, anywhere near the place that had been called the Sheep Gate. Couldn't be found until 1880, when some archaeologists discovered the whole thing a pool the size of a football field that had been split into two pools with two colonnades on each side and a colonnade or a porch in between. Remember I said faith in what you, what you don't believe? There may be certain things in Scripture that we're not exactly sure how to exactly correlate it with what we know historically or archaeologically, or, but that's not because we have infinite knowledge. It's not because we know all things. And oftentimes, God continues to reveal and prove the veracity, the truthfulness of his word, and gives us these uh, kinds of incidents to tell us about. There's also the whole story about an angel coming down um, and stirring the water, and whether or not that was something that was believed in some kind of superstitious way, or whether or not actually an angel did occasionally come there at the temple and, and do this powerful miracle that was available, and had been, had been doing it. We're not, we're not sure. We don't have any other indication one way, but there's... No reason not to believe. In, in, in any case, um, throughout all cultures, if you think about it, throughout all cultures, the, the miraculous healing waters stories, whether it's hot springs or some kind of a sulfur spring or some kind of medicinal water that's somewhere that... It, those kinds of stories run all over. And remember, God is sovereign over all of it. God is sovereign over all of it. So there's the story that an angel comes down, and when the angel stirs the water, whoever is brought to the water first is healed. We're also told here there's a multitude of sick people, but Jesus goes to just one, a certain man there who had been afflicted for 38 years. Now, because this is a book of signs, I don't think that the 38 years should just be set aside. If he wanted to make the point of it being a long time, he could just say it had, he had been afflicted his whole life. Why 38 years? Well, if these are signs, I think that we ought to consider the fact that 38 years was a determined and a well-understood amount of time that Israel wandered leading up to the 40th year. It wandered for 38 years in the desert. That's what we're told in Deuteronomy prior to the final sermons of Moses and then his death and then Joshua leading them into the land. 38 years reflected in the stories of the Jews, in the minds of the Jews, this time of wandering, of not being with God yet, not being in his land, things not being right. And this man has been afflicted for 38 years. So, um, when, we, when we see this, the, the old covenant administrations aren't really bringing us all that we were hoping for as, as, as the Jews are hearing from Jesus. The water and the ceremonial water pots pointed to the fact that the ceremonial waters were, were not sufficient. The wine of the new covenant needs to be brought forth. There's the need of a new birth of water and spirit that is given to Nicodemus, a declaration that something else has to happen to him. 
or the living water supplanting the water from Jacob's well. Samaritan woman believes she's at the well that was Jacob's well. She can get this water out there, and Jesus says, I've got much better water for you. Much better. You see that? So here again, we have water that is being stirred up by an angel and a man who has wandered for 38 years in his affliction, and this water is not enough. The water that is by the temple is not enough. Something greater has come, though, into his life now. So Jesus asks him, do you want to be made well? Now, isn't that a funny question? It's an odd question. It almost seems like a rude question. I can imagine, would, would Jesus have said it with a tone like, you've been here 38 years? Do you want to get well? Is, is that what he meant? And, and yet, as, as rude as a question that it might seem, I'm not sure that we already know that he has compassion on this man. So Jesus is, again, addressing something that we need to understand. Maybe a pro far more profound question that we need to be asked as well in our afflictions. Do you want to be made well? Think about it. How often today we are asked to identify ourselves by our struggles or our sins or our victimhood. We almost like it. We try to justify ourselves, our depressions, our anxieties, our, um, our struggles with sin by identifying ourselves with them in some way. This is who I am. Do you want to be well? Do, do you want that gone? It's, it's, a, it's an important question to be asked. Jesus asks, would you like to be identified by something else? Would you like to be identified as a follower of Christ instead of as a fill-in-the-blank? Would you like to be identified as one who has been born again by the water and spirit? The sick man gives his excuses, his reasons in verse 7, and Jesus just simply replies to him, rise up, rise, take up your bed and walk. Once again, Jesus' word is enough. His command is his word, and it's enough. The man immediately gets up, picks up his bed, and walks. I'm reminded again of John chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. God commands, God declares, and it's done. It's done. It happens. He says so. He, that, you, you are to look around all the world, everything around you, and you say, God just spoke. And there it is. All of it. The light, the ground, the seas, the mountains. God just spoke. And here it all is. And here I am. That's the God that you serve. That's the God that you are to know. God's commands are not dead commands. God's commands are not dead commands. His words have the power of being. His words have the power of bringing into existence. His, 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 his word has the power to bring light out of darkness. Who can bring light out of darkness? God. So, in, in some ways, uh, one author said this could be considered not just a regular indicative statement, but a performative statement. Rise, take up your bed and walk. And uh, by, by performative statement, he means the difference of this. Here's an indicative statement, just a pure indicative statement. Um, there's a married couple. It's the indicative statement. Here's a performative statement. I now pronounce you husband and wife. 
Those words are declared and something is now different. Something now is that wasn't when that declaration is made. Jesus, God, speaks performatively. When he speaks, it is. When he speaks, it is. Which means that his commands are not dead either. And this is going to be important for you as a disciple, a follower of Jesus. When God commands, it's not just a dead command. Lay it at your feet, now you've got to do something about it. When God commands, you get up and walk. How did I do that? God commands and you obey. How did I do that? You see? When, you, when God commands, it's not, it's not you now gutting it out. God commands and you walk. You weren't able to walk. You weren't able to walk away from that sin. You weren't, weren't able to stop with that temptation. You weren't able to... God commands and his word is. Performatively, he accomplishes what he commands. This is why Augustine said, is, is famous for having said, Lord, command what you will and give what you command. Command whatever you want and give what you command. And this is the walk, this is the life of obedience in the Father. In the Father's performative word, who is Jesus, at work by his spirit in us. Rise. Get up and walk. Don't give me your excuses anymore. I, the Lord God, am telling you, get up, walk. You see that? Well, just to close out this passage, and then we'll look at this a little bit more. The narrative continues, and the Pharisees' dead use of the Sabbath is revealed. They take this glorious gift of the Sabbath... Not another culture known uh, historically at that time has any idea of the idea of taking a day off. <laughs> this is not known. Or of giving rest to servants. I mean, are you kidding me? This is a gift that, that God had given to his people. And, and he gave it to his people based on his creation ordinances in such a way that we're, we're to see that it is, it's a uh, natural, it's a God-given, built into the system of life. Six days of work and a day of rest. It's a gift. The Pharisees really messed it up. While it is true, I mean, we have this man, he's, he's, he's raised up 38 years. Do you think he thought it was a burden to roll up his mat and walk and carry it? That was probably the most glorious moment of walking, of, of carrying something in his life. It was anything but a burden. Anything but a burden for him. Pharisees come up to him. What are you doing? Don't you know it's the Sabbath? And, well, there, it's true that there are Sabbath laws that condemn carrying a burden on the Sabbath. You can find it in Numbers 15 or Jeremiah 17. There were these oral laws and traditions that had been built by the Pharisees, uh, put together in, into 39 sections, defining how it was that you were to obey the Sabbath. You were to obey the Sabbath. They had twisted the, the, uh, this way from teaching a cessation of labor for the sake of Sabbath rest and celebration into a scrupulous law-keeping down to the weight and distance of anything you carried. You could carry something up to a certain amount of weight. You could pick up a chair and move it across the room, but you dare not drag it across the room on a dirt floor or you're plowing. And that's work. That's in, that's in the oral traditions. So that which was supposed to relieve a burden, the burden of work, 
became a burden that had to be carried. This man's burden has been lifted. He's been lifted from the burden of his infirmities. And they want to place the burden of some kind of law-keeping from some nitpicky God they're worshiping. Totally missing it. Totally missing what a Sabbath rest is about. The Sabbath for them had become the burden to carry, killing the very life and rest God intended for the Sabbath to be. And then finally, in the the very end here, verse 14, afterward, Jesus found him again in the temple and said to him, see, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Again, some strange words to consider. Jesus finds a man in the temple and he gives him a warning. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Now, we do know that there are consequences and curses that even come upon us because of sin. We also, and, and they can be infirmities, but we also know that infirmities are not necessarily proof that a sin has been committed. We'll find this when the man is, the, the, the boy who was born blind, the man who was born blind from, and was blind since birth. Jesus will address that. You, you can't take the argument the other way. But here, Jesus seems to link, at least within, with this man's situation, that he is to sin no more, lest the worst thing come upon you. If there's any connection at all, again, to the 38 years and the, word, uh, and the wandering of the wilderness and idolatries and refusing to trust God, possibly there is a connection there um, with regard to this man. So what is Jesus saying? Receive God's good gifts when he gives them to you. and Do not forget, do not forget that he has done so. I think one of the things this points out is that we are often we often have a deep and abiding memory of unanswered prayers. Can you tell me um, the unanswered prayers in your life in detail right now? I bet you can. Ones that are most burdensome to you. But if I asked you to give me a long list of all the prayers that have been answered, do you know them? Do you remember? What do you dwell on most? All of the answered prayers or the unanswered ones? Jesus says, notice, you've been made well. You've been made well. Now, life is still ahead of you. Life is still ahead of you, and there will be more trials. Sin no more, lest something worse comes upon you. See, you've been made well. See, God has answered your prayers. Do you know what those prayers are that he's answered? Have you listed them? Do you reflect upon them? Do you think of them? Or do you only think before God of the things he hasn't done for you? Just the way that you want. Look, rise up. You've been made well. Sin no more, lest something worse come upon you. Hmm. His answered prayers, God's answered prayers ought to stoke our faithful obedience. Falling away again into sin after the blessing can make matters worse. In 2 Peter it says... For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. Well, let's talk a little bit again about signs and healings and wonders for just a moment. Why don't we see healing like this all of the time? There is a longing, isn't there? There's a longing that God would just do that, that God would just strike all all blight, all infirmity, all trial, just be, it would be all done with it, right? Just like what happened with that, that young boy. Just like what happened with that man of 38 years. Oh, wouldn't that be glorious if God just, just healed everything? 
right? Well, we obviously can see from, from, the, from the passage here that the signs are given to us by John to reveal the glory of Christ so that we would believe in him. That is, to believe that Jesus is God, that he came to forgive us all our sins and save us from our just condemnation, to show us the way to the Father. And while it is true that Jesus can and does heal, on this side of heaven, all of these miracles are only temporary. You forget, we forget that the healed boy still died one day. And he probably died of something. Right, we forget that this man who had been um, this paraplegic who couldn't walk, all of a sudden is able to get up and walk, and he died again. Like, this wasn't the end of trials for his life. It wasn't the end of infirmities. It wasn't a once and done thing. That, that's coming. But here in this life, that's not what God is doing. Um, the wine in the jar is still eventually emptied out. And they're out of wine at some point. So if our focus is on the signs, our faith will be ill-grounded. If what we're doing is we're just looking at the signs and not what the signs are pointing to, telling us about, then our faith will be ill-grounded. If you try to make a deal with God, God, I will believe in you if. Now God, amazingly and compassionately, answers that prayer in real life and time. Probably some of you have experiences where you can say, I was doubting God, I didn't even know if I believed. You might even have a conversion story where you said, I didn't believe in God, and then I, I made a deal with him. And you need to understand, God doesn't make deals. Sometimes, though, he's very compassionate anyway and answers prayers. But God doesn't make deals like that. Not in this world, not in these days. He makes promises. He gives promises. But he's the author of the promises. And he's the administrator of the promises. He is the one who gives and keeps his promise just perfectly. And he doesn't ask for your wisdom on the matter often. But if the signs reveal to us the glory of Christ, then the destination that the signs point to then our faith will be a living faith and his word will become performative in our lives. What he says will be, get up and walk. Get up and walk and follow me. And there you will be, getting up and following him. Are you stuck in your sin? Are you stuck in your depression? Are you stuck in your victimhood? Rise, get up. Stop it. Here's the way out. Come follow me. When you hear that command that with the promise, it's performative. Changes us. Changes us from within by the means of God's kind spirit. And so it then is true that he has borne all of our infirmities and all of our sufferings. Including the ones that you're going through right now. He has borne them. Well, if he's borne them on the cross, if he bore those sins, we all understand kind of theologically, we get it, we're Christians. He bore my sins on the cross. But what about my infirmities? What about my trials? What about my sufferings? He bore them on the cross too? Yes. Yeah, God's word says so. How? He bore them on the cross so that all of your infirmities, all of your trials, all of your difficulties only can lead to greater glory. 
That's the only way they can go to those who walk by faith. He takes us in what one commentator called the school of afflictions. The school of afflictions and the glory of Christ. What benefits are conferred upon those who are afflicted? What benefits are conferred? If the nobleman's son had never been ill, would the father and his household ever come to faith? Did God use that son's sickness to bring that father to Christ? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. The affliction upon the lame man brought him face to face with Jesus and to deal with his own identity. Afflictions are one of God's tools to perfect us, it says. James 1, listen, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Are you familiar with the verse in Hebrews about Jesus being perfected? Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus had to be perfected? I, I thought Jesus was perfect. Jesus was perfect, and yet he was perfected. Consider, Jesus lived this perfect life, and yet he had to be perfected. He needed holes in his hands and a hole in his side. In order for Jesus to be perfected, he had to go through this great affliction. Even your Savior had to be perfected and had to be perfected through trials. He had to be perfected by being killed, by being murdered. So, when your trial has placed a hole in you, take it to the Lord and hear from him. Yes, and my son has a hole in his side, and it was needed for his perfection. Suffering is unbearable if we don't know that God is with us and for us. Suffering is unbearable if we do not know that God is with us and for us. But in the school of affliction any affliction. The goal is to bring you to the one whose affliction brought salvation to you and to the world. And, and think about this. You, you, you wonder, now how's, how's this affliction I'm going through, how is it bringing me to Christ? You, you, you may be fighting against it. But I tell you, there is an affliction coming to you, Christian, and it will lead you directly to Christ. And it is your death. Your death will be your final affliction. And in that final affliction, in and through the power of the Spirit, you will find yourself face to face before the living Savior. Afflictions bring you to Christ. Afflictions perfect you. Afflictions are given so that we might grow far closer to our Lord and Savior. And it's only there, it's only there before him that you and your eternal life is perfected. Psalm 119, verse 71, it is good for me 
that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of coins of gold and silver. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Father, there are afflictions in every life here. Some of them are deep and painful. All are very personal, for they have been specifically assigned by you. Use them, Lord, we pray, for healing and deliverance. And we do pray for healing and deliverance. But we do so knowing that ultimately these afflictions are to perfect us like Jesus, and bring us to Jesus. Oh, do this. Do this to the promise and praise of your gracious glory. In Jesus' name, amen.